Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McLenahan and this episode of the podcast examines the issue of restraint and seclusion of children and young people with additional needs in educational settings. The conversation explores how plans to introduce new guidance in Northern Ireland aimed at preventing the use of restrictive practices can be informed by experiences elsewhere in the UK. And I'm joined by three guests to discuss the matter. They are Chris Little, MLA, Chair of the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee for Education, Nick Hobbs, Head of Advice and Investigations at the Children and Young People's Commissioner Scotland, and social worker Sarah Goff, who is Development Manager at the Ancraft Trust, based at the University of Nottingham, and co-chair of the National Working Group for Safeguarding Disabled Children. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email the team at ltsw at basw.co.uk. Sarah, Nick, Chris, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I hope you're all feeling well. Sarah, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Nice to be with you. Good, good. And where are you, Sarah? Um, Well, I'm actually working at home, like most people, Um, but I'm from the Ancraft Trust, based at the University of Nottingham, and co-chair the National Working Group, Safeguarding Disabled Children. Okay, and Nick, uh, are you well? I'm grand, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. You're very welcome. And you're in Edinburgh, is that right? I am. I'm hiding in my spare room, uh, trying to to speak quietly enough that I don't wake my daughter up from her afternoon nap. Yes, that's a good (laughs) idea. Chris, how are you doing? Hey, Andy, how are you? Oh, I'm well, thanks. Actually, no one asks how I am. Um, So it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, Yes, and uh, you're in Belfast, Chris, is that right? I'm representing Belfast today, it seems. Yes, Uh, delighted to be with you. Thank you. And I'm in Belfast as well. It's very unusual. I actually interview anyone on this side of the RSC. Um, So thank you for joining us. In this episode, we're going to be discussing restraint and seclusion. And Chris, we're recording the episode on the 3rd of June. So at the start of last week, on Monday the 24th of May to be exact, the Northern Ireland Assembly passed a motion tabled by you as Chair of the Stormont Education Committee, which, among other things, called for the Minister of Education to introduce statutory guidance on therapeutic-based, non-aversive, positive behaviour strategies, mandatory training for all staff working directly with children and young people, mandatory recording and reporting of all incidents of restrictive intervention and the abolition of the use of isolation rooms. A huge amount was in that motion uh, and we're going to explore those issues in detail in a few minutes. But to start us off, can you tell me how this issue came to your attention in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I became aware of inappropriate restraint and seclusion as a result of meeting with the Shakespeare family as long ago as July 2019. Uh, Unfortunately, their son, Harry, had experienced inappropriate restraint uh, in his school um, and they had to to fight uh, long and hard to be heard in in relation to uh, the mistakes that had been made and the the harm that had been caused as a result of that inappropriate restraint. Um, I met with other families as well and then also connected with the, the British Association of Social Work Northern Ireland through yourself and became aware of campaigning 
work that uh, uh, Baswa was doing across the UK uh, and was very glad to work with Baswa to draft the assembly motion, which was submitted to the business office in 2020. Um, But we were very glad to eventually get it on the order paper, as you say, uh, very recently and, and had full assembly support for the recommendations that were made in the motion. Yeah, it was incredible that it passed with unanimous support. It did. The, the motion gave a real opportunity for all parties, all MLAs, to get a, a better understanding of uh, the, the harm that had been caused by instances of inappropriate restraint and seclusion, uh, and also to set out their support for the recommendations that were made by the, the motion over to the minister now to implement those recommendations. Fantastic. And we're going to dig into those um, points in a lot more detail later in the conversation. But I want to talk now about issues that face young people, children and young people, when they're subjected to inappropriate restraint and seclusion. Sarah, you have over 20 years of experience in child protection and social care, and you have a lot of knowledge in relation to safeguarding children who have autism, learning disabilities, or other additional needs. And it's pretty clear that the use of restrictive practices very often fails to meet the needs of children and young people. Instead of using restrictive practices when a child or young person with additional needs displays behaviours which challenge, what alternatives should professionals who are supporting them employ? I think the starting point has to be getting to know the individual child and working well with parents and listening to what parents and the young person themselves are telling us. We know that young people communicate largely through their behaviour And for young people with autism, young people with learning needs, young people with anxieties, their behaviours tell us a huge amount about what they're feeling. Sometimes children can't put those feelings into words. And it's really crucial that we understand how an individual child experiences their autism and communicates what they're feeling. And for some children... Being in a bustling environment, a noisy environment, a place with flashing lights, a place with lots of movement will be deeply distressing. Children need us to plan individually for how they will feel comfortable, how they will manage. And I guess a really important starting point is working with parents, with the child, with those who know the child and finding a way forward that helps that child feel calm and safe. And that seems to be a really important starting point. Um, when you mentioned children that have autism, you know, feeling very unsettled, very uncomfortable in certain scenarios, be it because of noise or, or other um, sensory issues, for that child then to act in a, a, in a manner which is it's challenging the staff that are there to support them, if that child is then subject to restrictive practices, that must be incredibly distressing for the child. And also for the other children around watching. And in some of the settings I've visited, we've not only been very worried about the impact directly on the child experiencing it, but on other children knowing that that's what happens and seeing what happens. So for children, these traumas can be repeated. Yes, yes. And does does it compound the trauma when it is repeated? Does it make the trauma greater each each time? Is that an appropriate way to look at it? Well, I think that's one of the concerns, isn't it? And when we look at the really useful report that the Challenging Behaviour Foundation and Positive and Active Behaviour Support Scotland produced um, in 2019, then they updated it in 2020, they document children's experiences they document the impact on children bruises marks like carpet burns injuries um very very frequent 
but also later the continued signs of distress, fear, shutting down, uh, unable to talk about what's happened, frightened to go to school. And for some, um, the 720 families that were spoken to as part of that um, survey, 35% of them talked about restraint or seclusion happening regularly. So it isn't about just a one-off. We want children to be happy and safe to learn. We can change this. Some of those children, I, I remember when I read that report, it, it struck me how young some of those children were as well. I think some kids yeah. as young as six. If we're looking at alternatives then, Sarah and, and Nick as well, have you any examples of particularly good practice that are that are used in educational settings or elsewhere um, that you could share with us as alternatives to restraint and seclusion? I think it's it's been really striking for us in that those conversations that we've had subsequent to, to our report coming out, and I don't know, we'll, we'll come back to talk about that. Um, there's been some really positive responses from from teachers um, about about how important it is to, to kind of surface some of this and the response to it. And there's a great example of a, a primary school um, where the, the head teacher and the management team have banned use of the term challenging behaviour because their their view is that that encourages a particular response from from the adults. And so what they're talking about is exactly what Sarah was referring to earlier is that they're identifying this this behaviour by children as being distressed behaviour rather than challenging behaviour because that prompts a human response, it prompts an empathetic response, it prompts a compassionate one that's kind of founded around how do we make this child who is who is distressed and who is really upset feel safe and secure and, and happy. Um, and that, that's where I think where most teachers want to be in terms of their relationships with, with children. But it requires that that kind of culture change and that, and that leadership to put in place. But, but there are some brilliant examples of schools doing that. And language is so important. I mean, I'm just thinking back over the conversation so far. I've used the term behaviour which challenges, which I've heard used quite a lot. Would you suggest that uh, distressed behaviour is a more appropriate term than, than the term I've been using? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the term distressed behaviour. I will use that term from now on. Thank you. Sarah, in terms of uh, examples of good practice, could you point us to any... Um, in your experience? It's interesting. I remember having a, a really careful conversation with a head uh, as part of a project we did from the Ancraft Trust that I worked for um, back in a few years ago, not many. And the teacher had been, the head teacher had been implementing the change away from restrictive practice and was deeply motivated, committed to changing the whole staff culture and what the staff group did was they kept really careful notes and records of every time anything happened. They talked it through, they debriefed the child, they debriefed the people involved, and they really spent time trying to make sense of what had led up to it. What were the triggers? What were the distresses? What had happened that had led to the teacher or the person, practitioner using that response? And what had happened to the child and then they grouped those and they analysed them so that they could then work according to each individual child's communication plan and behaviour support strategy and really plan, right, let's do this differently. Let's talk to the child, let's talk to the parents, let's talk to the practitioners and let's develop a different way. And it was intense work and they did it meticulously and it was hard. It was changing a staff culture. It was changing the way the child was used to being responded to and not listen to because children develop a pattern of not being used to being heard. How do we change everyone's responses? It was a deep and, and, and really carefully worked through cultural change at all levels of this special school. 
um, and it was having really positive results. And there's a, a very exciting piece of work being done in Cumbria. Nick might know about this. Um, and it's a, a project that's been carried out in two phases, looking at working intensely across a cluster of schools with different professionals involving family carers and the young people and school staff. Um, so that there are plenty of examples of good practice. They need sharing and we need a lot more attention to disseminating the learning. So it's about addressing issues at the, at the start of the process. If, if, if a child is um, distressed and at that point you're looking to using restrictive practices, you're essentially addressing the problem at the wrong stage. Absolutely. In terms of, we've talked about the impacts on children. Chris, I know you've had a lot of um, engagement with families. How have you seen this affect the families in terms of the, the, the treatment that their children have experienced? I think it's been traumatic for families. Um, I think the, the surprisingly the, the the biggest learning for me was the extent to which families um, had to strive to be believed. Um, the absence of any uh, mandatory recording of of incidents, the absence of any communication with parents about um, incidents of restraint that had 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 occurred. Um, made it really, really difficult for um, appropriate accountability in relation to, to those uh, incidents. Uh, and as a result, um, they not only had their, their child experienced harm, but they experienced real trauma and difficulty accessing the, the accountability mechanisms that they, they needed to ensure that that harm was acknowledged um, and to ensure that the, the place where that, that harm occurred um, took, took uh, corrective action to make sure that it, it didn't happen again. But that, that, was, that, that was one of the, one of the real you know, surprising learning uh, points for me. Uh, and I've engaged with some brilliant um, parent advocates along the way. They've, they've been inspirational and, and really they've, they've moved a government department here in Northern Ireland in, in cooperation with us in the Education Committee to, to start taking this issue seriously and to make sure that the, the complete lack of, of guidance is, is addressed urgently. And one of the issues where we've seen change delivered already is in relation to the use of uh, isolation rooms or seclusion. Mm. Um, I think the Department for Education in Northern Ireland has already issued guidance saying that seclusion should never be used. Sarah, you switched me on to some research by Sarah Martin-Denham from the University of Sunderland, and that indicates that the use of uh, isolation booths does not improve behaviour, but it can, can compound mental health problems and learning disabilities. So we've heard about that as an issue from parents in Northern Ireland. Given the impacts that seclusion can have on children, why do you think it's continued to be used as an option in schools other than in Northern Ireland? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not a teacher and I don't work in education, um, but I'm very mindful that to change practice, staff um, need help, support, resources, time and to see the children that they work for in a different light and that we need to change cultures. And certainly looking at Sarah Martin-Denham's comments and the thinking around, you know, continued and repeated use of these as, as a, it's a form of emotional harm. And it does really create distress and compounds the child's feeling of being the problem. 
um, and seeing themselves in a negative light. So it's it feels as if it's about the need for that change in culture and bringing in a much more creative approach to working with children whose anxieties and fears play out in how they respond. One of the things that Sarah Martin Denham talks about is the very vague guidance on the use of the isolation booths that you mentioned and the need for a lot more clear thinking um, for teachers and also to point out that the um, the guidance that we have in England reducing the need for restraint and restrictive intervention, welcome though it was as a, as a start, doesn't apply to mainstream schools. It applies to health and social care services and special health and education settings. It doesn't apply across the board. And I think that's something we need to be really aware of. I just want to come back to that point about the need for cultural change. Is that... Is that need for cultural change the greatest barrier you're facing? I think it's one of the greatest barriers. I don't know what my colleagues would say about other barriers, um, but I think it's one of the very biggest ones. I think culture change, culture change is, is huge. Um, but it's, it, it, I think you, you look at the reasons that, that underpin why some of those cultures are so resistant to change. And very often it, it's, again, exactly as, as has been described, it's the, the lack of time. Um, to to actually kind of consider the child's individual needs and to plan for them, the lack of of training and support to understand um, how you might go about meeting the needs of a child who has who has a kind of particular requirement within a within a classroom, the lack of of time and space and support to conduct reviews when when an incident of restraint has happened, to think about why it's taken place, to think about what might need to be put in place again. So, some of it is is attitudinal, I think, but but a lot of it is about the um, the level of support that's provided to teachers by schools, by education authorities, and by the government. Um, the other key barrier, I think, is training, training for teachers, but training for social workers, training for all professionals in autism is severely lacking. And we have some movements now following the Oliver McGowan initiative, but we still have a a workforce that hasn't had the right help to understand. And it's really crucial teachers and social workers get the right backing and support. Yeah, I would agree with Sarah and Nick there, Andy. I I, I don't think there are any uh, teachers non-teaching staff that, that set out in the morning to cause harm uh, but they need they need uh, as the guys have said they need education they need professional development um, to understand those uh, those different uh, behavioral communications that occur they need to understand the stress and um, and they also need training you know to operate in in situations where a child might be at risk or and, and might you know others around them might be at risk as well and i i think um the teachers that we've been working with are are up for that they're up for that cultural change and they're up for that training and support being put in place in order that we we do have that um fair equal positive learning environment for 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 all children that's incredibly positive and it's really good to hear I want to talk a bit about um, the work of the Children Commissioner in Scotland uh, and the research you've done, Nick, into this area, because it's really going to inform um, the work that's happening in Northern Ireland as well. So in 2018, I think it was, the um, Children and Young People's Commissioner in Scotland published its No Safe Place research. 
And that's played a key role in progressing the case for change in the use of restrictive practices in Scotland. Nick, what were the terms of that study and what did you find out when it was when it was published? So this was the the first time actually that the office had used its formal powers of investigation. So we have we have powers in statute to investigate uh, circumstances where we believe children's rights may have been violated. And this this came from having received over a, a period of time dozens of inquiries, calls, emails from parents um, and carers of children, predominantly children with disabilities, um, who talked about their concerns about the way in which those children had been treated in schools and in particular about the use of restraint and seclusion as a method of, of behaviour management. And what was really, really striking to us was that those cases had been raised for years by individual families and, and campaigners, um, human rights defenders like Deirdre Shakespeare in Northern Ireland, Beth Morrison and Kate Sanger in Scotland, Ellie Chapel in England. But they were often just dismissed as one-off failings, so the result of poor individual practice by an individual an individual teacher. Actually, we're a, we're a human rights institution, so that's how we approach these kinds of issues. And when you view these cases through a human rights lens, what becomes clear is that this is a failure of the state. It's not, it's not a failure of individuals so much as a failure of government to do its job and to make sure that children's human rights are respected, protected and fulfilled. So a failure to, um, to comply with the positive obligation on government to put in place a robust legal and policy framework to govern um, the use of restraint and seclusion. And so that was, that was what we focused on. Those were the terms of the, of the investigation was to establish the existence and adequacy of um, policies and guidance that reflect those state obligations uh, under international human rights law. Um, because those are an essential prerequisite to accountability and redress. And secondly, the extent to which incidents of restraint and seclusion where they did take place, um, the extent to which they were recorded and reported uh, at local authority level. Um, And that was because recording of incidents is is recognised internationally as a really important method of ensuring that practice is rights compliance and, and that there's appropriate monitoring and scrutiny in place. In relation to the violation of specific rights, Nick, um, I noted the report references the European Convention on Human Rights and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Which specific rights were being violated? There's almost too many to list and there's there's probably nothing worse than, than someone kind of sitting on a podcast and, and just giving you a list of a list of articles. But to, to kind of put it in, in plain English, from the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the, the Convention on Human Rights, and also the, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, children have the right to, to be kept and to feel safe, to have access to an education that develops their personality, talents and abilities to the fullest potential without discrimination, to be protected from cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, to exercise bodily autonomy, not be unlawfully deprived of their liberty, to participate in all decisions that affect them, to have their best interests prioritised. So it's it's... It's a real um, an issue that, that that really kind of engages a, a real nexus of rights across a number of, of international human rights treaties. That sounds like a comprehensive litany of failures. <laughs> it is. It is pretty comprehensive, and and it, what it what it flags, I think, is the the level of impact that restrictive practice, that restraint and seclusion, can have on a child. So if you think about all of those different rights being engaged, then you start to understand actually what how, how profound an impact um, it can have on a child when we get this wrong. Chris, the motion stressed the need for new guidance to be human rights based. So Nick has been talking about the human rights situation in Scotland. Um, is it your impression that the Department of Education views this issue through a human rights lens? I think they're getting there. Uh, as you referenced earlier, we've seen the publication of interim guidance. And you mentioned earlier that made clear that uh, no child should be left in isolation 
um, that a child should always be able to leave uh, a situation whenever they wish. So I, I think they are starting to put the, the rights of the child at the focus of the guidance. As Sarah says, we've got a long way to go to, to get towards final um, robust standardized statutory guidance. But I think the Department of Education, as a result of the campaigning of parents, uh, as a result of some of the work of the Education Committee and some of the evidence sessions that we've had with them, I think they, they are now beginning to view this through the, the lens of the rights of the child. Certainly the outdated guidance that uh, teachers and, and non-teaching staff had to refer to was much more uh, discipline policy based, um, which was just in no way fit for purpose, as, as colleagues have said, to, to respond to a child in distress. So I, I think they're starting to, to move in the right direction. And you're calling for statutory guidance. Sarah was talking about some of the shortcomings of the guidance for England. Not only is it limited to um, special schools and healthcare settings, missing out mainstream schools, it's non-statutory. That's at odds with what you're calling for. Sarah, would you see it as a more appropriate situation if that guidance for England was actually placed on a statutory footing? Absolutely. But we can have the best guidance and policies in the world, but it's practice and cultures that we also need to change. We need the guidance and the policy there to, to be the strategic lead, but we need, a, we need a really robust, energetic management culture and frontline practice culture that puts these children's um, needs and rights and families' needs and rights right at the centre. You know, families are distressed by this as well. It affects the whole family when a child is going home at night upset and, and distressed. And it's practice that we need to change. So, yes, we want the guidance, but we need the time, the allocation of time and resources to help practitioners. I think Chris made a really important point a little while ago. He said nobody wants to go to work to do uh, a harmful job. Teachers, social workers, everybody wants to do a good job. They need the resources to do it. Absolutely. And Chris, your motion wasn't looking to limit the guidance to special schools. You're looking to cover mainstream education as well. Yeah, so the, the Children's Commissioner in Northern Ireland was really clear that the, the guidance should apply to all children to, to protect all children um, from inappropriate restraint uh, and seclusion uh, and to put those, those best practices and, and cultures in place uh, to make sure the, the training and the support is available right across the board. Um, you know, we have uh, children with autism, you know, in all types of educational settings in Northern Ireland and, and indeed, you know, children with uh, wide and diverse learning needs right across the board. So it, it's essential uh, that it applies uh, to, to all settings. And, and I think Sarah made a really interesting point in terms of autism awareness. I, I, I'm a youth sports coach as well, and I've, I've learned a lot about autism uh, as a result of, of being a, a youth sports coach that, that I, I could not have understood previously, but I, I had to get education and training to do that. Um, I was coming in contact with uh, children with autism, expressing particular types of behavior that had I not been educated and trained to, to be um, aware of, of, of the nature of that, then to, to other people, it, it can seem like um, undisciplined behavior and it can be responded to with a, a disciplined response, which is obviously completely inappropriate. So I think uh, autism awareness and you know learning need awareness 
right across the board is is essential and I think that's why we reference mandatory training as well maybe that, that's something you come back to Andy yes absolutely Chris and um, just want to jump back to the Scottish example Nick um, so it wasn't long after the publication of the um, Scottish Children and Young People's Commissioner's research that the Scottish government actually committed to produce human rights based guidance on restraint and seclusion was that prompted by the research alone or were there other factors driving that change uh, there were there were other factors. Um, the we we produced the um, the investigation report and the initial response from the governments uh, was that they uh, didn't agree to the level of review of the guidance that we that we'd called for, um, and so we worked with colleagues at the Equality and Human Rights Commission to use their legal powers to bring judicial review proceedings against the governments. Uh, so relying on on a number of the human rights that I outlined earlier uh, and arguing that the government was failing in its obligation uh, to protect children from those rights violations. And and ultimately, it was the threat of those legal proceedings that moved the government's position. Um, We had to rely on on the EHRC's powers. We don't yet have our own powers to bring litigation in our own name, although that that is coming um, very soon with the implementation of the the UNCRC and Corporation Bill. And it strikes me, Nick, as a little odd that the it took a judicial review to move the Scottish government on because the Scottish government has, um, well, it's taken steps to integrate the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child into domestic law. That seems to sit slightly at odds with having to require judicial review to move the government for this guidance. It is a little bit odd, yeah. I suppose the in terms of timing, the, the commitment to incorporate the convention hadn't been made at the point uh, that we uh, that we produced our investigation. That happened, that happened subsequently. Um, and the the incorporation of the UNCRC from the point of view of restraint and seclusion is a is a game changer. So I would I would still strongly prefer the guidance to be to be statutory. Um, the government's agreed that that they will make it statutory if if on review it doesn't appear to be working. But actually, the the incorporation of the CRC means that so many of these rights now are, are directly justiciable in the Scottish courts. So children have have the direct right will have the direct right of redress. Um, through the courts if their rights are violated um, and that, that that's going to be transformative I think in terms of um, driving culture change and driving practice change in Scotland. Am I right in thinking that the English guidance was also driven um, by a judicial review? Nick, do you know anything about that? Uh, I, I believe so, yeah I believe so. Um, I don't know a, a huge amount about it but I, I believe it was in similar terms to, uh, to ours uh, around the, the human rights that they were identifying. Okay, and I just want to come back to that point you made about the government putting the guidance on a statutory footing if required. Do you see it going that way? I suspect it probably will do. Yeah, that's that's maybe me being a little bit cynical about um, about how long it will take for for culture and practice to shift. Uh, and 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 I agree very much with with Sarah when she said that um, you know guidance on its own doesn't protect children you do need that that shift in culture that shift in practice that shift in resources um and that's why the, the guidance alongside incorporation of the unc uh, the uncrc for us is, is so critical because that does place a, an obligation on the scottish government on local authorities to be thinking about children's rights um at all stages so when they're thinking about budgets when they're thinking about training when they're thinking about resources children's rights have to be part and parcel of those of those decisions alongside the children's rights it's the duty for workers to make reasonable adjustments in line with the equalities act isn't it yeah you know that that obliges us to to see all children as having those rights and some of the problems that we have maybe emanate from the fact that we tend to have a one-size-fits-all approach and what maybe the three of us are saying is that these children 
have a right to a different approach because they have different needs, but they're equally valid rights. Absolutely, Sarah. Thank you. And Nick, just to clarify, we probably should have addressed this at the start. The The Scottish guidance is still forthcoming. It's not been produced yet. No. So it, it fell into the um, the kind of the, the hole that was created by, by COVID. So the, the working group had been set up. Uh, we're part of that. Um, one of the conditions for us being part of that was that parents um, and, a, and a kind of wider range of, of experts were involved and had previously been the case with the um, the original national guidance. We also um, wanted the government to ensure that they put in place a process that would allow children and young people to be consulted on the guidance as well. So that does inevitably take take a little bit longer um, and the ability of the working group to meet has been has been constrained by by COVID. Um, but it has it has picked back up again now, and so we're we're looking forward to it to it getting moving and to the the guidance being out as soon as possible. Any would you put a time time frame on that, Nick? I, I can't, I can't draw you. Okay, no problem. No, no, sorry, no problem. <laughs> so, Chris, Scotland had a judicial review, and in Northern Ireland we had the Assembly motion. I'm hoping we're not going to need a judicial review in Northern Ireland as well. But what are your hopes? How enthusiastic are you that the Department for Education is going to deliver in the near future? Well, I, I, I think the, the parent advocates and the education committee will make sure and hold them to account that they deliver in the future, but they have set a, a timescale of March 2022 for the Department of Education review group to report on its findings in terms of the, the new statutory guidance. So we, we pressed them on that. We, we would hope for a, a more rapid timescale than that, but they they've set up the review group they have set up consultation with our children's commissioner uh, with the northern ireland public service ombudsman children's law center uh, and, and a, a range of parent advocate groups as well so i think the minister realizes that our guidance is unacceptably out of date and and that the work needs to proceed uh, promptly in that regard in relation to delivering statutory uh, guidance, would putting something in statute make it a longer process? It 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 would add uh, more work in relation to that. But the feedback that we're getting from the the Northern Ireland Public Service Ombudsman, um, who, who conducted a number of inquiries into an appropriate restraint and seclusion, suggests that we need that standardised, centralised. Uh, Department of Education-led approach in relation to this. Um, and and we, we feel strongly that that's going to require uh, statutory legislative guidance to make sure that that approach is taken. A point that was touched on earlier, and a big part of the problem in relation to understanding this issue, is the lack of recording. Do you expect, Chris, that if uh, mandatory recording and reporting is introduced, that the scale of the issue is going to is going to grow, or at least our awareness of the, the scale of the issue will grow? Are we looking at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we know at the moment? I hope not. Um, but as I referred to earlier, the, the Northern Ireland Public Service Ombudsman inquiries have uncovered cases of which we weren't aware publicly. Um, we the, the investigations uncovered instances of um, makeshift cardboard uh, isolation booths being used in, in one instance, um, a, a reduction in school hours, uh, inappropriate restraint, inappropriate seclusion, um, a, a number of cases that we that we weren't publicly aware of. And for child protection reasons, um, all the details can't be named. So uh, we 
recording needs to be put in place. To be fair to the education minister in his response to the motion, he was almost apologetic about the fact that the current framework cannot guarantee that all incidents uh, of restraint are recorded. Um, and, I, and I think in, in, in so doing was acknowledging that that is something that needs to be addressed rapidly. Um, recording, of course, should happen and, and communication with the parents um, should be the, the first port of call. Um, so I think that is, uh, that's increasingly widely accepted that that reporting has to be put in place. Yes. And, and Nick, the Scottish government has committed to a system of recording incidents. That I'm guessing that hasn't been implemented yet. No, that's that's being um, developed alongside the guidance. Uh, so yes, the, we we argued that the the recording should take place at a national level on the basis that it's the it's the government's obligation to be aware of um, the number of incidents of restraint and seclusion, not least so that they can see if their policy approach is is having an impact. Um, they have agreed uh, as an interim step to put in place uh, a consistent method of recording at at local authority level. So at least at least incidents will be consistently recorded. And one of the things that we that we warned about when we we released the report was that if we don't have these mechanisms in place, if we don't if we don't create a a, a system that allows incidents of restraint to be um, to be reported, recorded, and scrutinised, um, particularly if they're if they're considered by parents or, or children to be inappropriate, then parents will turn for for address to you know the only place they can do, which is the criminal law. Um, and we have seen a number of instances recently in Scotland of teachers being prosecuted um, for for restraining children, and that's not not somewhere anyone wants to end up. So we we absolutely have to have this this kind of robust um, process and mechanism in place that that allows parents to have confidence that these incidents will be will be investigated and addressed appropriately. It's that consistency in recording, Nick, which I think is so important, Sarah. In relation to the English guidance, it, it's. To me, worryingly vague, I'm just going to quote directly from it, it states that settings and services will wish to consider when to record occasions where restraint is used. To me, that seems like it's a bit too flexible. Yeah, and um, when you look at the 2020 recommendations from the um, Challenging Behaviour Foundation and our Scottish Scottish colleagues report, it's crystal clear there should be um, a new legal duty on local authorities and clinical commissioning groups making it, making it mandatory to notify. And um, we would certainly agree with that. And I think, you know, when we look at some of what families told colleagues in the very positive pilot of new ways of working in the Cumbria project that I mentioned earlier, those families talk about being routinely sidelined ridiculed and even blamed for their children's behaviour when they try to find out. And I think maybe really important issues are that alongside these requests for things to be mandatory, we also look at getting much earlier help in for families Mm -hmm. so that the problems can be helped before children become teenagers for schools to be struggling with. We need practitioners and families need earlier help. And I suppose that the argument which always goes in social work is, uh, yes, early intervention and prevention is where the money should go, but the money needs to go to statutory services. And and this may not be an issue that is able to warrant the money being spent where there are other greater pressures in the system. I think when we look at the costs of earlier help, and certainly the chief social worker for England 
adults and children's chief social workers are calling for that earlier help in their spectrum of opportunity document. They're calling for a consistent point of contact all the way through. And, and they show very clearly that where early help was put in, there are lesser likelihoods of much more expensive placements away from home later. So I take your point on costs, but I think we can all see that it's in that early help that the investment is needed to get the families the help they need. And the families that Chris and, and Nick and I have all been worried about, um, that some of these families have fought and battled and been having sleepless nights for 10 years before they get help. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we, we need to look at it from that perspective. Thank you, Sarah. Just coming back to the other shortcomings uh, in terms of the England guidance, the guidance states that staff should use their professional judgment to decide if restraint is necessary. Now, again, that leaves an awful lot of room for interpretation. If staff hadn't been adequately trained, which again, Chris's motion called for mandatory training of staff, but if staff haven't been adequately trained, it's very hard to use professional judgment to know whether it is appropriate to use a restrictive practice. And if there hasn't already been careful thinking with that child and with their parents about how we manage times that are painful and distressed. Um, you know, one of the things we really want to see is individual planning that's preemptive, that doesn't wait for a crisis to make a decision, but that understands previously what the triggers are for a young person and doesn't put a young person into that situation. And that has a better understanding of that child's behaviour as a legitimate form of communication. We don't, we don't want anyone hurting each other, um, but we want to understand children. Thanks, Sarah. A- another shortcoming in the English guidance, which I think leaves far too much scope for ambiguity, and I'm going to quote directly from it, uh, it says, to be confident in their judgment, staff should also ensure they know the scope of the legal powers authorising restraint and to keep abreast of changements, changes and developments in the understanding of what constitutes good practice in this area. Now, Basel in Northern Ireland, we've argued that it's essential that staff are fully trained um, uh, in the use of posit- in positive behaviour support strategies. And we've also argued that in Northern Ireland, the Department of Education and the Education Authority should be held responsible for ensuring staff are kept up to date with development on what's considered good practice and that shouldn't be left to the initiative of individual teachers. Like Chris, you know a lot more about how the Department of Education operates than I do. Do you think the Department of Education in Northern Ireland will take a more proactive approach to development and training than its English counterpart has? I, th- I think the issue of training is remains a concern, Andy. Um, we have passed previous motions in the Assembly about mandatory autism training for teachers in Northern Ireland and it, it was passed at the time and the education minister appeared supportive at the time. He certainly didn't block the motion. Um, however, in the outworkings of, of that recommendation, um, he, he's introducing a response now where he's referring to the, the teacher CPD strategy for Northern Ireland, which is called the Learning Leaders Strategy. And, and he's saying that mandatory training is not consistent with the, the approach taken by the learning leader strategy. So I think training is going to require eternal vigilance. Um, our, our, our special schools and, and many of our schools across Northern Ireland are over capacity and under resourced. Our, our special educational needs system in Northern Ireland is under real pressure. So our, our teaching and non-teaching staff need all the training, 
all the support, all the extra resources that they deserve and that we can get them. Uh, and that it, it, we're, we do have concerns that unless that training is mandatory and resourced centrally by the Department of Education, that it will, it will not meet the, the standard and the, the rollout that we need it to. And, and Chris, as well, when the um, Minister for Education was contributing to the debate on the motion, um, he also highlighted that funding implications um, associated with mandatory training could be an issue. Or he was flagging up how expensive it could be to deliver that training. Do you think funding is going to be a sticking point in the future? I, I think there's a concern regards the, the principle of, of mandatory training, it seems, um, and obviously the resourcing as well. But... Um, this is a, a children's rights issue, you know, as, as we've mentioned previously, we, we have to find the, the resources and, and the support. Um, this is about equal educational opportunity for all our children. Um, and we have to make sure that the resources are in place to deliver that. One other question. Uh, we're recording this on the 3rd of June. I said that at the start. It's going to go online on the 10th of June. Will will we have a different education minister um, by the 10th of June? It's something that, that could happen. And if it does happen, if, if the education minister were to change, it's going to stay with the same party. But what could that mean for the motion? The motion has passed. If the education minister changes, could you see problems there? Well, obviously the motion is, is non-binding, Andy, as you know. But I think what it does achieve is, it, as you've, you've referred to earlier, it's quite a detailed motion. It has a, a range of recommendations in there that are consistent with the recommendations that have already been made by the Northern Ireland Public Service Ombudsman, amongst others. So I, I think it puts down a marker um, for what the will of the Assembly is in relation to new statutory guidance for restraint. Um, so I, and whether this minister continues or a, a new minister comes in, we've also got an election coming up next year as well. Um, I think the, the fact that the Department of Education Review Group has been established the fact that the will of the Assembly has been expressed so clearly in relation to this um, should mean that it can withstand the change of a minister, whether um, before the election or maybe even hopefully afterwards. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and um, do you fancy it, Chris? Education is a passion of mine. I, I really, really value the, the role that the committee chair uh, allows me to play in relation to this. So we'll, we'll keep, we've got a lot of work to do over the next year in, in that regard and we'll keep at it. One of the issues we've discussed earlier is involving other stakeholders. So obviously involving parents, involving teaching staff um, and classroom assistants. Chris, you'll have good relationships with the various teaching unions. What Have you had any feedback from the unions um, in the wake of the motion? I, I had a, a limited opportunity to engage with unions in advance uh, of the motion. Um, it's absolutely vital that we, that the teachers uh, are are directly involved in in the process of um, putting that fit for purpose guidance in place, um, and I think it's important that the Department of Education Review Group in, engages widely uh, with teachers. I've been proactively contacted by teachers in in special schools in particular to say, um, you know, we face some really um distressing situations you know we 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 face, we face some situations that we do need uh, additional training support and resources to be able to respond to um but we want to be able to respond to it and special school teachers are some of the most dedicated professionals i've ever met in in this role in over 10 years so i, I think 
they'll be they're they're ready to to play their part in improving the the framework and the guidance that's in place around this issue thank you chris and just to wrap up now i want to ask everybody the same question if you could give one piece of advice to the policymakers in northern ireland sarah looking at your experience in england and working to um the the government guidance that's in place there nick in relation to your experience in scotland and chris in relation to all the work you've done in northern ireland if you could sum up into one point what you would want um, policymakers in the northern ireland department of education to have forefront in their mind when developing guidance for northern ireland what would it be Okay, I think I think it's really important that that we extend this guidance to all schools, and that it's really important that we um, have a policy of working openly with parents. Parents need to be told when things happen. It's the ten year anniversary of Winterbourne. Um, we want to see open cultures. It's in open cultures of collaboration and. Co- co-production and that's what the really positive work in Cumbria and northeast of England by contact and colleagues is showing that we can work well together to improve things. The obvious one from me I think Andy make sure everything is grounded in human rights um, and that it's it's threaded right the way through whatever whatever it is you produce so not just what we sometimes see in guidance where you have a section at the start that says you know here's some sections here's some articles from the UNCRC and then the rest of the guidance proceeds without making any reference to human rights whatsoever you have to thread it all the way through um, all the way through everything you, that you're producing and particularly when you come to providing people with with really kind of powerful good practice examples is make clear how human rights are informing those examples. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. It applies to all schools, um, rights-based and based on on listening to the children and the parents and their experiences to date uh, and then resource our, our, our brilliant teachers to, to put a, a new, more fit-for-purpose guidance and framework into practice. Sarah, Nick, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your expertise in relation to this issue. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.